Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Steidel, your other co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, October 10th. 2021 and we are talking about different things this sunday i don't think there's much about the democrats infrastructure human infrastructure bill not not much about that that's my segment but okay (laughs) oh is that right yeah well on my shows it was not covered in great depth well my shows i mean they did discuss it but there was like you mentioned a lot of topics that were covered. There was the new finding by the Judiciary Committee in the Senate about leading up to January 6th. There was the Facebook hearing with the whistleblower. And some of the shows also looked at kind of the state of the Republican Party, particularly that Grassley kind of groveled to former President Trump. Grassley groveling. Aren't you proud of that alliteration? Yeah. Imagine if you could get Grassley together with Mike Gravel. Remember Gravel from Alaska? Uh-huh. You know, Grassley and Gravel groveling. Gravel's above it. I feel like we're going to start a Dr. Seuss <laughs> book here on politics. But let's... <laughs> Polylog Seuss. <laughs> yes. Let's... Let's get moving on the show, Naomi. What shows did you cover today? Yeah, so I looked at State of the Union, which was hosted by Dana Bash. I looked at Meet the Press, Chuck Todd, as usual, because he never takes vacation. And I also looked at This Week with George Stephanopoulos. And I took a look at Fox News Sunday, hosted by our usual Chris Wallace, and Face the Nation, hosted by our usual Margaret Brennan. So quality questionable. Naomi, did you have anything you wanted to highlight today? Yeah, so I wanted to look at the interview with Nick Clegg. He is Facebook's vice president of global affairs, essentially their top PR spokesman. And he was on all three of my shows doing some serious damage control. He was on none of mine, which is kind of interesting. Yes. So he was on State of the Union, Meet the Press, and This Week. And I wanted to note the interview on State of the Union in particular because I thought Dana Bash did a better job, frankly, than Chuck Todd or George Stephanopoulos in the interview itself. So there was a few examples here where I thought Dana Bash did either very, very active listening or had kick-ass follow-ups or asked very specific questions. All things I'm a big fan of. The first example here is when Dana Bash asks Nick Clegg to clarify if the actions that he's boasting about, bragging about, proud of, of Facebook are things they have done or things they will do. I read I have a binder here full of the uh, of the uh, research that you're talking about that was uh, released. And I understand it is a minority of users, but these are vulnerable children. What are you doing to change that, to change the way that you operate your platform so that those minorities, sure. as small as they are, 
don't feel the way they feel when they use it? Well, first thing we've done, we've paused work on something called Instagram Kids. We actually think that's part of the solution, but we understand the concerns are such at the moment that we need to just press pause, listen to experts, consult with others, explain our intentions and so on. In the meantime, we're going to introduce new controls for adults of teens on an optional basis, obviously, so that adults can supervise what their teens are doing online. Secondly, we're going to introduce something which I think will make a considerable difference, which is where our systems see that a teenager a teen is looking at the same content over and over again, and it's content which may not be conducive to their well-being, we will nudge them to look at other content. And the third additional, a new measure we're introducing is something called Take a Break, where we will be prompting, pr prompting teens um, to, to take, just simply just take a break from using uh, Instagram. And I think these are exactly the kind of things which are in line with ongoing work we've been doing in, in, in cooperation with experts for many years that we clearly want to um, so redouble. Um, our, our efforts going forward. Are what you just listed, these are things that you are going to do in the future or things that you already have in place? Because this survey was published internally two years ago. Yeah, and we d we've done uh, many things, of course, since then, uh, which is precisely why we do the research. And I, you know, but, I do but have think you, but have you already implemented what you just listed or is that going to happen in the future? Things like nudging no, children away from harmful content. No, I, I was answering your question because you asked me what we're going to do. Those are our future plans. Okay. What we've done since that research, of course, we've constantly introduced new, um, new uh, tools, for instance, so that people can hide certain words, can make sure that they're not connected uh, with people who they don't want to be connected with, to just limit their contact with people who uh, they don't want to be um, uh, connected to. We now provide automatic prompts where someone's li literally, you know, if, if someone's, for instance, looking at material relating to uh, eating disorders, they will get prompts on their feeds to guide them towards helpful information, resources from experts and specialist organizations who can help them. In general, Nick Clegg did a really intense effort to kind of do a lot of kind of PR vomit in terms of just like inundating every answer with like tons and tons of information about what they're doing. And he did this not just for this question, but in general, he would try to, and, and he did this, I think, on Meet the Press and on This Week, which is kind of, throw everything out there and then the host would pick up on what they could or what they wanted to or, you know, it was really easy to kind of slide your way out of the question. And I thought this was really important here by Dana Bash because she's saying, look, we're finding all these things about how dangerous your products are. Like, what are you guys doing about it? And he's like, well, you know, we're doing, and he goes kind of through all this. She's like, so this is things that are already in place and it's still dangerous. Are, are these things you're going to do or things you are already doing? Because if it's already if you're already doing it, then it's clearly not enough. Right. And so I just thought that distinction was really helpful. And it was the, and that's like really active, hard listening to do. Um, mm -hmm. So just like major props to Dana Bash. Yeah, there was a bit of a discussion on this on the panel for Fox News Sunday. That's really all I got in the shows that I had. But there were some powerful voices, it seemed from many different sides, kind of agreeing that Facebook has really, as pointed out by Dana Bash here, they've really screwed up, right? Like, they've known that their product is dangerous, they've kept that secret, and they haven't done a very good job of doing much to reduce the harms of their own product. Here's a quote, for instance, from Harold Ford Jr. on that panel talking about how Facebook has 
proven itself in need of regulation, just like lots of other industries. Look, banks are regulated. TV and radio are regulated. Airlines are regulated to protect consumers and, and children in large part. So social media platforms have invited this because they've, they've, they've demonstrated they can't regulate themselves. If data shows, and this, this young whistleblower demonstrated, the data shows that they know that this is harmful. Some of their products are harmful to the mental health of children, particularly young women, and they chose to ignore it. So Congress is going to have to develop the expertise, much like if you think about when, when, they, when they addressed Microsoft many years ago, the issues. They brought in experts. They should bring in experts here, whether it's privacy, whether it's reducing some of the protections the, the social media platforms face in terms of liability, all of that should be on the table. And if Congress doesn't know how to sort through it, bring in the experts like this whistleblower to help them sort through it. It's funny you should bring that up, Brendan, because that was one of the examples of specificity in this interview where Dana Bash specifically asks, do you support legislation allowing regulators access to these algorithms? that you have been talking about, access to Facebook algorithms, the ones that you use to amplify content to users, should regulators have access to those algorithms? And she's not saying like, who should be a part of this or how do you do it? She's saying like, okay, you're talking about there might be need for regulations. Like how much are you willing to open up Facebook to those regulators? And that's like a very specific question that goes to the heart of how willing Facebook is going to be to really work with outsiders to make their product safer and not just assume that we will trust them to do it correctly. And what was his answer? He said broadly, yes, but there needs to be greater transparency on how this would happen. And essentially they have 40,000 people who are already employed to do this work and that they've this has been a multi-billion dollar investment and that they're actually working on this, blah, 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 kind of defending the strategies that Facebook already has in place that have been proven not to be enough. But I mean, he's doing his job, right? Another really great specific question in this interview was when Dana Bash asked Nick Clegg about what exactly Facebook's algorithms did or did not do prior to the insurrection on January 6th. Francis Haugen is now poised to meet with the January 6th committee. I understand you have said that only those who broke the law in and around January 6th are to blame for the insurrection. But just a simple yes or no. Did Facebook's algorithms amplify or spread pro-insurrection voices ahead of January 6th? Let me be clear, because there's been a lot of, I think, somewhat misleading discussion about what the algorithms do. And they're algorithms. There's hundreds, thousands of them in Facebook, Facebook as much as there are in many online companies. But what the ranking algorithms do, in other words, that's the crucial uh, algorithms that help um, decide what you what you see more prominently on your on your newsfeed mm -hmm. on, on Facebook right. uh, th than other pieces of content. If you removed the algorithms, which is, I think, Frances Haugen's one of her central recommendations, the first thing that would happen is that people would see more not less hate, hate speech more not less misinformation because these algorithms are designed precisely to work almost like giant spam filters to identify and deprecate bad content and you know I, I really do think um, we should remember that technology of right. course it has downsides but it also has right. very powerful positive effects but, but and, my question and it's one is of the specifically about January 6th did the algorithms that are in place amplify pro-insurrection voices ahead of January 6th? Yes or no? 
Look, uh, th th given we have thousands of algorithms and you have millions of people using this, I can't give you a yes or no answer to the individual personalized feeds that each person uses. We cooperate with law enforcement, of mm -hmm. course, to give them content that, that, that might have shown up on our, on our platform. This feels like a perfect argument for why Facebook should be regulated because he's like, well, with, there's thousands of algorithms and millions of people. I can't tell you whether it raised up the voices of people calling for insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. W why not? Isn't that an important thing? Shouldn't you be able to ensure us that you're not encouraging insurrection? That seems like a pretty basic thing if you're saying that these algorithms reduce misinformation and reduce hate speech, does it reduce speech that is calling for insurrection at the Capitol? And if it doesn't, why not? It clears, Clearly it doesn't, because you can't say easily that it would not have amplified those voices. Wow. Yeah, just a fantastic job here, right? The very active listening, the follow-up. I mean, a passive listener would be like, oh, okay, that's uh, enough of an answer. And move. If this was George Stephanopoulos, oh, there, yeah. would not, there, would be, there wouldn't be these follow-ups. No, let's be clear. not at all. Yeah. So Facebook is doing major, major damage control. And it's always really interesting when a host is able to get a guest who's having a very hot, tough week. And, and you can see, like, outright, which host, which journalist is really taking them to task the best. So just kudos to Dana Bashir. Yeah, absolutely. And it sounds like Clegg is there to say, look, we work really hard to try to be good. But the reality is, as he says after she's pressed him, we have thousands of algorithms and millions of people using this. So I can't give you a yes or no answer to the individual personalized feeds that each person uses. It's, it just sounds like we work hard, but we don't really have control over our platform. Exactly. Brendan, did you have a quality or questionable that you wanted to note today? Yeah, so this is literally the like the obverse, one might say, to what you are talking about. This is Chris Wallace speaking with House Republican Whip Steve Scalise. He's a representative from Louisiana. And Wallace actually had some pretty pointed follow-ups. The problem was he kind of ended it there. He didn't push any further, especially when Scalise pretty obviously had some pretty lame, at some points even factually wrong responses. And that's what kind of drove me crazy, is that Wallace let him off the hook after one strong follow-up. And this is not a new thing from Chris Wallace. I feel like it's a trend. He very rarely will have a strong follow-up to his follow-up or press after a follow-up. It it's like, has to be very important to him, it seems, or important in his vision of the interview to keep pressing on something after having a strong follow-up, which is disappointing because his follow-ups themselves are quite strong. But doing that third, fourth, fifth one, unless he really, really cares, he pretty much lets anything fly after his hard follow-up. So here's one example where Chris Wallace was pressing. Now, what you're hearing here is him pressing Scalise. This is Chris's follow-up about specifically why Scalise is against 
the bipartisan infrastructure bill. This is the hard infrastructure bill, the roads and bridges one, the one that has support among Senate Republicans, but that Scalise is against. Let's talk specifically about the infrastructure bill, which again passed with 19 Senate Republicans supporting it. And let's talk about what that bill would do for your state. Uh, the infrastructure in Louisiana gets a grade of D plus, and the bipartisan bill would mean almost $6 billion more to repair bridges and roads. Uh, Congressman, is blocking the president's agenda more important than helping the people of your state? Look, we put together over a $450 billion infrastructure bill with roads, bridges, ports, waterways, all the things you're talking about. That's not where they want to go. And oh, by the way, in this package, they have language that tells the Corps of Engineers they can't do projects if it benefits the oil and gas industry. <clears throat> Look, in my state in South Louisiana, there are a lot of oil and gas jobs. We produce a lot of energy for the country, but that kind of language would actually make it unlikely that we would even get projects in our state and other states too, because a lot of states are in the energy industry. They just seem to hate American energy, fossil fuel based especially, while they're begging countries like OPEC uh, to produce more oil and they're letting Russia build pipelines. They're shutting off pipelines and energy production here. That language is in this package of bills. Uh, I wish it was out. I wish they'd negotiate with Republicans in the House. Sam Graves, the lead Republican on the Transportation Committee, has been wanting to negotiate a really good bipartisan package for a long time. They won't even talk to him. So uh, they want to go it alone uh, and just count on a couple of Republicans, or do they want to get something that would actually be really good for the country without all this far left stuff that's raising costs, jacking up inflation. Inflation is one of the biggest drivers hurting our economy and hurting middle class families. It's, frankly, it's a big tax on lower income families. They should abandon that far left socialist agenda and work with Republicans. Congressman, I want to talk about one other subject with you. So that was a long answer, but I did want to give the full context to Scalise's response there. I really wish that instead of moving on, at least before Chris Wallace moved on, he at least said something like, to be clear, the package would not actually make it unlikely that you would even get projects in Louisiana. As I said, it would mean $6 billion for roads and bridges in Louisiana. I understand you're against it by the answer you gave, but I just wanted to set the record straight. It would mean a significant amount of money for your state. Now, moving on, Congressman, I want to talk about one more subject, right? Because in Wallace's question, he says $6 billion will go to repair bridges and roads in your state. And Scalise tries to hand wave and say, no, 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 because they don't allow uh, oil and gas projects, that kind of language would make it unlikely that we'd even get projects in our state. No, that's not true. You, you're lying about that. You would get projects in your state. Right. And I think this is something that I'd be curious if Chris Wallace has ever talked about this in an interview. He'll press. But when a guest is slewing bullshit, he doesn't like... What's the term I'm thinking of? Like, he doesn't, like, put a flag down and say, Right. I hear you, but this is actually what is going to happen. Or this is what that means. Or, and then move on. Right? Because yeah. he lets the lie. He lets the mistruth. He lets whatever you want to use. And and he could do this with Democrats or, Repo like, with any guest, right? To say, to clarify, this means that. Moving on. He kind of just lets, he assumes the viewer picks it up on their own. Well, and even worse than that, sometimes Wallace, after some of this BS, will end his interview with, and I quote, 
This is how he ended it, by the way. Congressman Scalise, thank you. Thanks for your time, and always good to talk with you. And I appreciate the way you step up and answer questions and the way that you choose to. Thank you, sir. What? The way he chooses to answer questions? And we haven't even gotten to, like, the main thing that's made all the headlines today. But, like, if you're going to lie directly and not be called out for it, and then Chris Wallace praises you for the way you choose to answer questions, WTF. Naomi, let's get to our main segments. So I'm talking, I have a, I think a short segment. I'm not sure. (laughs) I always think they're short and then they're on average, like 35 minutes. But I think I have a short segment on infrastructure. What are you talking about today, Brendan? I'm talking about the infrastructure of our republic. So a different type of infrastructure. You know, if Chris Christie were to hear that, he would freak out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think, you know, we're talking about what is true and what is not and kind of reality. So maybe you take the first segment. Yeah. Okay. I'll do it. Let's do it. So I wanted to start this segment, not with any of the shows that I actually covered today, but with a show that we covered a few weeks ago. And that is Meet the Press, where I was calling out Chuck Todd. First, I was praising him for focusing on the fact that Trump is still in the news and treating that as a very serious issue. But at the same time, I was criticizing Chuck Todd because it seemed like he dedicated his entire show to the fact that Donald Trump still has power within the Republican Party without talking about the consequences of that, about what Donald Trump means for the Republican Party and what that means for the country overall. Welcome back. We've just had two new indications of former President Trump's growing dominance of this version of the Republican Party. Yesterday, a few hundred people gathered near the Capitol for a rally that was in support of the January 6th insurrectionists. That came one day after Republican Congressman Anthony Gonzalez of Ohio, who was one of the 10 Republican House impeachers, decided there was no future for being an anti-Trump Republican. And he announced he would not run for re-election. That, in fact, Meet the Press was missing the larger narrative, which is not actually about Donald Trump. It's about the fact that Trump represents an autocratic, anti-democratic agenda that has taken over the Republican Party, one of our two major parties. We only have two. And one of them is now becoming extremely anti-democratic, small d democratic, and that's extremely disturbing. But guess what? Flash forward to today, a few weeks later, and Face the Nation is doing the exact same story, but doing it way, way better. Doing it, in fact, with hardly any clips from Donald Trump himself and hardly any discussion of Trump himself. This is about the Republican Party. This is about our democracy. And this is with a number of experts and not just politicians. But she did begin with one politician, and that is Adam Schiff, chair of the House Intelligence Committee, representative from California, and a new book that he's written that Margaret Brennan noticed had some striking similarity to a major article by Robert Kagan, a conservative writer. Take a listen to Brennan's question with question to Adam Schiff. People. You just made an incredible statement about uh, an autocratic cult. Um, this is one of the themes in your book. You aren't often compared to conservative writers like Robert Kagan, but you come to basically the same conclusion he just did in a very widely read essay where he says essentially that it's the Republican Party that is trying to lay the groundwork to challenge the next few elections. Um, You say preparing the battlefield for the struggle to overturn the election 
should they regain majorities in Congress, they might be successful. You're saying we're on the cusp of a constitutional crisis. Yes, uh, and this is really why I wrote the book, because I wanted to sound the alarm that our democracy is hanging by thread right now. Um, as a member of the January 6th committee, you know, I have to acknowledge there may be another violent attack on the Capitol, but what is even more pressing a threat is what we see Republicans doing around the country, uh, taking this big lie about the last election and running with it. Uh, and I wanted to, to tell the story in this book about how, how does that happen? How in four short years does our democracy become so threatened? Uh, and one of the terrible realizations for me is that so many of the people I worked with across the aisle, uh, who I admired and respected because I believed that they believed what they were saying, turned out not to believe it at all. Uh, that the only thing that they cared about was the maintenance of their power or position. Mm -hmm. uh, and I want to show people how that happens, how, how people start by making small compromises of their morality and their values and their ideology and end up completely capitulating. So I think this is a powerful voice Adam Schiff's, certainly one could see it as a partisan voice. Adam Schiff himself is a Democrat. But I do think he's being honest where he says, look, and we heard him talk about it here, there are people that I respected, that I worked with, that I believed in, and I believed what they told me about what they believed. And again and again and again, it seemed like they didn't actually believe it. When it really mattered... All they cared about was staying within their in-group, ingratiating themselves to Donald Trump, to the Republican Party, to stay in power. It's a realization that I think a lot of Democrats have had to come to, particularly after the events of January 6th, when they saw how extremely dangerous those sorts of positions could become, and how still Republican leaders within the very Congress that was under attack managed to defend or apologize for that attack. So I want to move on because Margaret Brennan spoke to a number of people about this. She also spoke with Chris Krebs. Now, he served as director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency at DHS for Donald Trump himself. He was actually fired by Donald Trump when he refuted Trump's claims of election fraud back in November of 2020, less than one year ago believe it or not. Krebs was on talking a bit about Facebook, about that, you know, level of security, but also talking about what seemed to be the main thrust of today's episode of Face the Nation. Here's a little bit of that. You know, talking about politics, you ran the rumor control site for the 2020 election um, in your previous role when you were within Homeland Security. It, what you said and the work you did on that is one of the reasons why President Trump fired you. Um, last night, um, he again stood at a rally in Iowa and called for the complete overhaul of our election systems. These calls are not going away. Um, do you think that there is an active effort underway to undermine elections, as Congressman Schiff started off our program saying? Without question, it's happening at four different levels, uh, both state legislatures and state elected officials, uh, some of the folks running for secretary of state in Arizona and Georgia, but we're also seeing in the U.S. Congress. And then Krebs goes on to reference what happened on Face the Nation. Imagine that. Take a listen to the clip from Face the Nation that Krebs is going to reference, and then we'll return to Krebs. This is again House Republican Whip Steve Scalise 
speaking with Chris Wallace. Let me ask you one last question in this regard. I, clearly, there were irregularities in the last election. There are irregularities in all elections. But I, I want to ask you a specific question. Do you think the 2020 election was stolen from Donald Trump and in continuing to make that charge, not having states do election reforms, but specifically making this charge that the election was stolen. Do you think that that hurts, undermines American democracy? Well, Chris, I've been very clear from the beginning. If you look at a number of states, they didn't follow their state passed laws that govern the election for president. That is what the United States Constitution says. They don't say that the states determine what the rules are. They say the state legislatures determine the rules. But the rules. states all and certified. States, they didn't follow those state legislative rules. The, the states but they all didn't certified. follow those legislative rules. Right. But at the end of the day, are we going to follow what the Constitution says or not? I hope we get back to what the Constitution says. But clearly, in a number of states, they didn't follow those legislatively. So set you rules. think the election was so stolen? I, I, stolen? What I said is there are states that didn't follow their legislatively set rules. That's what the United States Constitution says. And I think there are a lot of people that want us to get back to what the Constitution says we should be doing, not just with elections, with a lot of other things, too. So, Naomi, I don't think we need to comment too much on what Steve Scalise said there because Chris Krebs on Face the Nation does exactly that with the rest of his answer. Take a listen. But we're also seeing in the U.S. Congress, uh, the minority whip was on Fox News this morning with Chris Wallace, and he was talking about how uh, the, the election was was effectively stolen. He will not admit that Biden won, uh, President Biden won fair and square. And, and so what we're seeing, as, as uh, Congressman Schiff mentioned, is this constant erosion of confidence in the elect, uh, the electoral system, and it is ultimately anti-democratic, and we're we're frankly in a death spiral as I see it. And you know, two years, four years at the ballot box isn't good enough, and there have to be other accountability measures for those that are going to continue to proliferate uh, these lies. That's an incredible statement. You're a lifelong Republican, um, and and you are acknowledging and pointing to leadership encouraging some of these things. How is that possible? Um, that this continues to happen. I mean, it's it's base. It's captured by the base, right? I mean, they're, they're afraid to speak up because they're afraid the former president is going to try to primary them. And then the other piece is that they've activated and lost control of uh, their their voting base, the people that are going to put them in power. And they know that if they go against the former president, that not only will he speak out against them, but they're going to. You know, they're going to start seeing people show up at their town halls. I mean, you've actually seen Republican members of Congress stop holding town halls because they've overactivated their base and it's gotten out of control. Uh, so, the, again, this is a death spiral. They've lost control and they don't have the ability to, to rein it back in. This is so interesting because on the shows that I looked at, I'm thinking in particular, Meet the Press, there was a lot of raised eyebrows and dismay and concern and I don't know whatever euphemism you want to have for someone reacting but not actually doing anything about Trump continuing to lie about the election and Grassley just kind of playing along but there are hosts who make these newsworthy moments the center of their coverage as opposed to a data point in a trend, right? And I think that's what Margaret Brennan does pretty well here in saying 
how are we still moving in this direction? Why hasn't anyone turned the boat around? Like, where are Republicans and being able to claim back their party? Or do they still want it? Like, it's almost like forcing, you know, pulling back the lens even further back to say, like, this is where we are and nothing has changed to course correct. Right. And it's it's more alarming than oh man, there was this other crazy rally. Right, absolutely. It is, it's more significant. You know, they're talking about the significant, the significance of these events and not just this particular event right. where Trump said here or there or whatever. And and it reminds me on this week, Chris Christie, there were two points that I was like, okay, that kind of makes sense, but okay, that's bullshit. Like at one point he says something along the lines, like it takes time to like, build what you want or to go where you want to be so that like Republicans are not going to suddenly like fix everything that's wrong with the party nine months after Trump has been out of office. And I was like, okay, I, it sounds like a cop out, but like, I don't disagree. But then at the, like, you know, three minutes later, he's like, I didn't watch the rally. I watched some, I don't know, LSU versus Alabama. I don't know. I don't know. I don't, we don't do football, but there was some big football game and he's talking about this football game that he watched instead. And I'm like, okay, so you're saying this is important work, but you're just going to like disregard it. Like it doesn't even make sense. But when the coverage is based on like, this is a, this is a moment in time. Yeah. You can ignore it and it's not a big deal. Right. But when it's part of a trend, then you're irresponsible for not doing anything to course correct. Yeah. Or if you're a journalist, not doing anything to highlight where we're exactly. going and what is going on here. Exactly. That's a good point. And where we're going in terms of, you know, course correction, like the reason why it might be important, was underscored by Fiona Hill also on Face the Nation. And this was one of the most powerful and insightful discussions that Margaret Brennan had. She was the senior director for Europe and Russia on the National Security Council under, again, Donald Trump, working for Trump. She testified, if you all remember, during Donald Trump's first impeachment trial, which had a good deal to do with the areas of Russia and Europe. So she was quite qualified to talk about what was going on in the Trump administration at that time. Here she is talking about where things might be headed. How dangerous is this moment? I think this dangerous, uh, the moment is incredibly dangerous. I mean, we are in a dangerous moment. People are talking about a prospective constitutional crisis. We're already in it. I mean, I was listening very um, attentively to what Chris Krebs um, is saying, somebody who I worked with extremely closely. And when Chris had to basically call out domestic threats to the election during the 2020 presidential election, it should have been obvious to everyone. He was the Department of Homeland Security. His whole job was to push back against external threats, not against domestic actors who were trying to undermine the integrity of the election or to cast uh, doubt on it. When he had to speak out in public in the way that he did, it should have been an alarm bell to anyone watching. You know, in the book Peril, uh, Robert Costa and, and Bob Woodward wrote, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Mark Milley, at the end of it, is quoted uh, as comparing the January 6th siege of the Capitol to the great dress rehearsal. You're a Russia analyst. You know exactly. immediately what that phrase is, which is what Lenin called an uprising that preceded the revolution. I read that and I said, dear God. Yeah. I mean, he, the general is saying that this is a precursor potentially to further violence. 
Is, is this overstating things in a historical sense? He's not overstating it at all because, I mean, we all saw in real time what happened on January 6th at the Capitol building. And General Milley was absolutely right. Any student of history, but any observer of even American politics over the last decade. I mean, when have we seen something like this before? We haven't. Not in our lifetimes. We've seen episodes, you know, particularly during the civil rights movement and, of course, during Vietnam, where there were protests, but storming the Capitol building of the United States. I mean, this is exactly the thing that you think of historic in revolution, storming the Bastille during the French Revolution, storming the Winter Palace during uh, the Russian Revolution that General Milley was alluding to. And as he was saying, we've seen many historical episodes where there is violence, people discount it, they think that this is just a passing occurrence, you know, Vice President Pence has been downplaying it. Even though he would have been targeted, he was targeted. They wanted to lynch him. And then, you know, people sweeping this away, saying nothing happened here. And the next time around, you get the real thing where people actually do seize those major buildings. And I said that also in the book, that this was, in effect, a dress rehearsal for something that could be happening near term in 2022, 2024. We've got election cycles here that will heighten the tensions. And once people start talking about violence, once the threshold is crossed, we're in a danger zone. So here's Fiona Hill laying out how soon this political violence might once again bubble up within a year or two of this this period. And that was highlighted in that op-ed that Margaret Brennan mentioned by the conservative writer Robert Kagan as well, going deeper into what the possible outcomes can be here. And so I give Brennan a lot of credit for raising these voices up and having these conversations. And you hear in Brennan's voice throughout it, like, what, really? Could it really be this bad? Are you sure? Even to the end, to the very end, to the last question, Margaret Brennan is still asking, but hold on, a lot of people say that this is not a big deal, right? And Fiona Hill just kind of knocks that down. But there are so many people who will look at the investigation Chairman Schiff is working on and say, that's just politics, that's just political messaging. They'll look at the violence. I've heard people tell me this on Capitol Hill and just say, that's a riot. A few crazy people. Not the precursor or a dry run of a coup, as the general put it in the terms of, that you are right now. I mean, how do you respond to people saying you're overreacting, essentially? Well, people are saying that because they don't have any personal experience of these kinds of events. But I can certainly tell you, as an immigrant, as somebody who came to the United States in 1989, against the backdrop of the crumbling of the Berlin Wall and the backdrop of the end of the Cold War, I also know immigrants you know, like myself who came from war zones, who came from places like the former Yugoslavia or places um, like you know, Sri Lanka, which has been you know, pulled apart by um, civil war and conflict, Afghanistan, Syria, you know, you name it. All of the people that I know who are immigrants are looking around and saying, can't people see this? We've come from war-torn societies. All of the hallmarks are here. So perhaps, you know, Americans should talk to some of their neighbors who've come from somewhere else and who came to the United States to flee just this kind of occurrence and have them tell them what their personal experience was. I know Fiona Hill is a very serious, smart woman who we should take serious, as she says. The subtext is here, like, everyone else is smarter than you dumb freaking Americans. Like, (laughs) just, like, ask us and we'll tell you this is what... (laughs) This is what's coming for you. Yeah. If you don't do anything about it. We are... We've been here before. (laughs) 
We have seen these signs. And she lists off like a half a dozen countries. Yeah, she's like, like, this isn't a limited experience in the rest of the world. This is not like a Russia thing or like Yugoslavia. <laughs> oh my God. She literally says, you know, you name it. <laughs> when she's listing out the countries. Wow, America. Literally, she says, all of the people that I know who are immigrants are looking around and saying, can't people see this? All of them. <laughs> Fiona Hill's whole network knows Americans are idiots. <laughs> so, good for Margaret Brennan treating it seriously. I guess the interesting thing to watch here obviously we want to make sure our democracy is not completely destroyed that is the most important thing to watch but when it comes to the sunday shows i'm interested to see where margaret brennan and face the nation take the story now now that margaret brennan has gotten out of her system all of the what really huh well why hasn't anyone done anything about this before are you sure so now that she's gotten that all out of her system We'll see where the story goes on Face the Nation. But more importantly, where are these other Sunday shows in this story? What the hell? All of these flashing red lights and alarm bells and the other shows are making baby steps in the case of Meet the Press, missing the story. But at some point, they're going to have to confront it. And when they do, I am also very interested to see how they deal with people like Steve Scalise. And I mean, certainly we know how Jake Tapper has decided not to have anyone on the show who supports the, or who voted against the certification of the election after the riot. But how do you deal with a party that routinely uses phrases like they hate, right? We heard that from Steve Scalise in his clip that I played earlier. You know, he just kind of threw it off. It just rolled off his tongue. You know, they hate the, the Democrats. They hate energy in this country. Well, well really, is that true? I don't think they actually hate energy, but it's so easy for Republicans to paint their opponents with these pretty extremist phrases that doesn't leave a lot of room for respect, political dialogue even, or understanding, debate, negotiation, compromise. How do you compromise with someone who hates things? Naomi, let's talk about infrastructure. Yeah, so I feel like the broader theme here is issue framing. And that applies to both of our segments. I wanted to talk about issue framing specifically about the infrastructure plan and negotiations last week or the week before. I don't know. I don't really know time. But I mentioned that it was kind of wild that Secretary Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen hasn't been on the Sunday shows and we're working on a huge economic proposal. There's this whole fight with the debt ceiling and she's been MIA. Well, someone listened to our show or <laughs> I am... Well, Janet Yellen did. <laughs> we know that much. Or I'm a witch. You know, it's October or whatever. And she was on this week. And she was interviewed by George Stephanopoulos. So I was like, ooh, she's on. Okay. I, you know, I don't watch a lot of daytime news. And so I haven't caught a lot of Janet Yellen interviews with the exception of like clips on Twitter. So I was like, this should be really interesting. And I felt like, one, if this is what the administration is willing to say, we're not getting much. And two, this is also a real failure of 
journalists capturing the bigger story. So a few things stand out here. Or maybe I should paraphrase. What stands out is how nothing is really said. Take a listen to this response from Janet Yellen on This Week when George asks her, how is the negotiations, how is the prioritization moving forward to get the bill, the Build Back Better plan, passed? Democrats are negotiating over the size of that plan right now, trying to get an agreement over around $2 trillion rather than the $3.5 trillion that President Biden proposed. Is the best way to do that by eliminating whole programs or trimming everything? Well, you know, different people, uh, different members of Congress have different views on that. And there are active discussions taking place now among members of Congress, among Democrats, with the White House. And we're trying to figure out what is the best way to construct a package that uh, would have huge payoffs uh, for America, would not only address our hard infrastructure needs, roads, bridges, ports, um, railroads, uh, infrastructure for the, elect- for the electric grid to promote, um, to enable us to address climate change, but also um, programs that would really um, help children succeed, help families succeed, participate in the labor force, the child tax credit, um, child care, early childhood education, um, community colleges. These are all important programs, and they're going to be hard choices uh, to negotiate in the coming weeks. There is literally nothing new in that minute, 90 Very long seconds. answer, yeah. N- absolute zero news. Nothing that says what the White House is pushing for. Nothing that says what they're hoping for. Nothing that says, gives specifics about any of the programs that they're fighting for. Like, literally, it might as well, you know, kind of like, you know, remember in like Archie comics when like Jughead would want to say something and then there'd be like a giant like talking bubble and then like oftentimes it would just be empty because it was like Jughead. That's what this reminds me of. Like, can you can you give us anything about how you're approaching this one month, this magical month of negotiation that you suddenly bought yourself? No, nothing. I mean, this reminds me of like, you're asking a chef what they're going to serve and they're like, well, on the menu, we have things that include different types of nuts. There's pine nuts and there's almonds, there's pecans, and we have corn syrup in some things. And... There's, and they just go on, you know, there's eggs and dairy, and we think dairy is very important. And (laughs) and it's like, okay, but... Is this pesto? What is this? (laughs) Is this what you're making me? Is this what's on the menu? Like, what? these are individual ingredients. What, what are you doing? Yeah. What do you want? Just, like, the Build Back Better proposal is biden's proposal like it's your own damn proposal how are you fighting for it nothing well you know members of congress have different views on that and there are active discussions taking place among those members of congress and among democrats with the white house and we're trying to figure out what's best oh my gosh you're saying nothing yeah here's another nothing answer in which George brings up Manchin's means testing that he wants for some of the programs. Senator Manchin has proposed means testing some of the programs. Is that the best way to go or do you need to make them universally available so they have stronger support? 
Well, there's a trade-off there. We know that programs that are universal um, have tended to be long-lasting and um, very popular, but um, there's also an argument for, um, you know, making sure that the, the highest-income Americans um, perhaps um, don't get the benefit of a program that's most, most needed by those with lower income. Um, and, you know, even with the child tax credit that we're sending monthly checks now, there are limits, income limits, uh, for uh, receiving those. Let me read you the definition of means testing, <laughs> and I think your and answer, that's enough of an answer. You'll find your answer in that. Do you think it's appropriate? Are you going to find other ways to like make it affordable so Manchin will vote for? Like, ah! I'm going to read you the argument for both sides of this, and I think you should be satisfied with that. <laughs> I it it's so painful. But I will give Dorsephanopoulos some kudos because he had a follow-up that I didn't know he had in him. And <laughs> Like a follow-up? <laughs> That's funny. At some point, isn't the president and you, aren't you going to have to weigh in on these arguments, on these disagreements? We're working and talking with members of Congress, and, um, you know, this is a healthy give and take that's going on right now among uh, Democrats with different points of view on this. Um, we do have a limit on the amount that we can spend, and there are hard trade-offs that are going to have to be made. But I think everyone realizes uh, all the Democrats in Congress, that this is an historic opportunity that we have to invest in these in this country to um, address some longstanding structural problems that have been holding back American families, making their lives difficult, making it hard for uh, children to succeed, and um, making business more competitive, putting in place um, the the investments that we need in this economy to help us to help us compete. And um, I believe that. Uh, Democrats will come together and uh, do what's necessary and take advantage of this um, One of the big opportunity. It's important. So quite the sassy follow-up, like, is the administration going to have any opinion ever? Pretty much is what George is asking here. And and her answer is no. Her second secretary Yellen's like, nope. we're, we're talking to people. This is a moment. Something's going to happen. Bye. <laughs> There's a healthy give and take that's going on right now among Democrats with different points of view on this. I, apparently, the White House isn't one of those Democrats with a point of view on this. <laughs> but they're observing the, the give and take. Wow. Yeah, it's truly so painful. There was another kind of nothing answer, but at least it was, at least the question was so hyper-focused that the nothing answer is more apparent. So I thought it was kind of a better example of your question. Sometimes answers are a reflection of the question. And take a listen to this moment in the interview on State of the Union when Dana Bash talked to Amy Klobuchar, the Democratic senator from Minnesota. In this specific clip, you'll hear Dana Bash ask about the various 
childcare provisions that are in the Build Back Better plan. Real quick, I want to ask about uh, the $3.5 trillion uh, deal that, or the potential deal, reconciliation uh, that is before you guys. Uh, Joe, uh, Joe Manchin, rather, Senator Manchin, has reportedly said that he wants progressives to choose between the expanded child tax credit, paid family leave, and child care subsidies. Are you willing to lose any of those? Uh, all of them are your priorities. Any of those? in order to get this deal done? You know, I'm not going to negotiate this on TV. That is going on right now. And we are becoming, we are coming closer and closer to an agreement on this. The bipartisan infrastructure bill that's so important, I know you'll hear um, Governor, former Governor and future Governor McCullough talking about this on the show. That is really important infrastructure for our country. The second piece of this is what I think of as the people first agenda. Uh, making sure we make it easier for okay. people to afford a prescription drugs and child care and make sure that billionaires are paying taxes. And that's how we pay for Senator. it. That's the second part. We're getting closer to an agreement. We now have the next month to get it done. And I know Senator Manchin. I know the people involved in this. I've been in the rooms. We will get okay. these bills done. So in this answer, she's pretty much saying, like, infrastructure is really important. We want to help people and we're gonna. And that's all I can say. But like. This is why people don't know what's in the bill. This is why people don't know what programs are being negotiated and what is at risk of losing or fighting for. Like there was a recent article I read where people know that this is a fight about cost, but not a fight about like actual services. Yeah, yeah. On Face the Nation, Anthony Salvanto was on talking about new polling from CBS that said exactly that, that people, what they know about this bill is the numbers and basically nothing else. And that even when you poll them about the specific issues re- that are in the bill, most of the American people are like, ooh, that sounds good. That sounds that sounds, sounds great. like we need it. But then when you ask them, do you think that this particular bill will actually help you? Most Americans say no, because they don't know that it's even in the bill. They just know the number. But it's these Democrats can't get on the same page, which which I mean, it's being negotiated. Right. Right. So it's not like I expect them all to be on the same page, with the exception of the progressives in the House who have been very consistent in their messaging. Yes. So I don't want to kind of like, you know, clump them together with these Senate Democrats who say nothing about what they're willing to fight for or stand on or push mansion or push cinema or maybe you don't want to make it that public but maybe you you make the case why it's important to you you don't have to make it a case against mansion you can make it a case for the constituents in your state like it's not that hard to make a case for something that doesn't have to go against someone else yeah it, it hurts you know the hard thing is that all these questions are joe mansion says this and joe mansion says that you know like so yeah many but a them. smart politician says well and and Klobuchar has done this before. The in my state, we need home health aides because right. you know, XYZ reasons we need workers to do that work. Like I've heard her give that answer before and she's not giving it here. And that's a choice. And it's a dumb choice. And just to kind of close this segment, I thought Yamish Alcindor on the panel on Meet the Press kind of gets to the heart of like why I find this whole coverage so discombobulated and 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 patchy because the the need for this the build back better plan i feel like doesn't come from the same place depending on who you're talking to 
sense of urgency is absolutely at the heart of some of the disagreements in the Democratic Party. Um, when you talk to young Democrats, base voters, some of the people who who feel passionately enough to show up at Senator Cinema's class in, in Arizona or on Joe Manchin's boat, they feel like they're they're fighting for their survival in the middle of a COVID economy where women are being locked out at higher rates, where people of color are being locked out at higher rates. Um, they feel as though these are the times where they need the federal government to step in and to say, "You, we here here is the lifeline that you have, and here is the sort of um, lifeline to, to to being able to access your future." And then you have Senator Manchin and others who are sort of saying, okay, we need to, to sort of change this, but we don't want to change right. too fast. And we don't want to have a wholesale retelling of the social policy. Because let's remember what President Biden is, is essentially um, saying that he wants to do is overturn in, 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 in a really big and large way. And one of the largest ways in history are social policies in this country. He's wanting to right. redo how we look at child care. That's a completely different outlook than what Senator Manchin wants to do, which is really sort of change people's lives in, in, bit by bit but not a in a wholesale way. And we keep using <laughs> both on this show and in this clip, Yamiche Michelle Sonora is talking about childcare, but you could also say the same thing for home health workers or higher education or, you know, a green economy. Like there are so many ways that people feel like this is a moment in which that particular issue or cause can move into a completely different trajectory into what is possible in the next five to 10 to 20 years. And instead, we're having conversations of what number are you okay with? What number will you accept? What number is Manchin telling you? And that is not helpful. It's not illuminating. And you don't freaking learn anything. You don't learn what like is needed in these specific sub-industries. You don't learn how people are living with it day to day. You don't learn any, it's not people driven at all. And you're not, and these shows aren't bringing on experts in any of these subjects. Right. Ever. Yeah. And hey, there's a lot of people who know healthcare, childcare, education, <laughs> like energy. Like these aren't hard subjects to find experts in. Especially in D.C. In D.C., exactly. So if you wanted to understand the issue and understand the needs and make it issue driven to understand how those services would impact the need, you could do that. But it's a choice not to. Right. It's not only a choice not to. It's a choice to seed the conversation to the talking points of the politicians. Right. When you only invite the politicians on and you phrase every question based on what Joe Manchin said or what the progressive said then you don't get the reality of what's happening here, which is what Yamiche Alcindor is trying to underscore, which is the people who are going to be affected and also the enormity of Biden's agenda here. What Biden's trying to do, as Yamiche describes, is a, quote, wholesale retelling of the social policy. That's what Yamiche Alcindor says. And if indeed that's what this is, then why are these shows covering it like it's just any other bill with a few things here in it and a few things there out of it and some big numbers? That's not what it is. It's potentially huge, as Yumiche Alcindor is underscoring here, right? And that's hints at the kind of coverage that I would hope would be at the core of what they're talking about here, you know? Exactly. And it, the disparity between kind of the tone policing 
that we see and kind of the Senate speak when any of the Democratic senators are on talking about this versus when we see clips of people literally kayaking to Joe Manchin's houseboat to ask him why he won't (laughs) invest in a green economy. Like, (laughs) it's light years away from each other. It's the, the, the examples that I saw in the show were like, are people going too far in their advocacy? It's not like, why are they this desperate? <laughs> Never. I'm actually surprised that the shows aren't talking to experts or taking the story in another direction. Not necessarily because it's the better journalistic direction or a more interesting one, but just for like variety. Like, aren't you tired of talking about asking the same questions again and again about whether you shorten the duration of the programs or you reduce the number of programs. I've heard that question like 15 times now over the last few weeks. And no one will say anything. Right. Can't we move on? Don't you want a little variety in your coverage of this topic or or any topic? Ah, Apparently not. So we have one more month of this. They have three or four more Sundays. Find an expert, any expert. Try to push the conversation. Well, okay, so I will say that on Face the Nation, there was some discussion about what the bill could potentially do with the one of the representatives from one of the Federal Reserve Banks. But it was mostly about its impact on inflation, and that's about it. We'd like to see more. That's all I will say after saying a lot. Well, that's it for Polylog. This week and every week, we encourage you to make your dialogue count. And this week... Our challenge would be... So how about this one? Because I feel pretty passionately about this, but I didn't go that deep into it. I just kind of mentioned it offhand. But that use of the word hate by Steve Scalise, where he just said, oh, you know, Democrats hate uh, American energy or something like that, which is a bunch of BS. Like, come on. Um, I mean, perfect example is Joe Manchin, right? I mean, he's from a state that is dependent on American energy. And he's got a lot of power in the party right now. So anyway... I don't have to refute that. But what I'm saying is this use of the word hate, like those types of words shut down the possibility for political dialogue or really any dialogue. When you start saying that the person you're speaking with or potentially are speaking with hates this or hates that, and the thing is something you care about, right? Not like they hate waiting in line. Everyone hates waiting in line. Or I don't know, they hate stubbing their toe. But you know what I'm saying? Like, Yeah, absolutes. But the idea, yeah, the idea of absolutes when it comes to things that you value, that really shuts down conversation. And it is rarely actually true. It is like a lazy way to basically cause divisions and like the sharpest divisions you can possibly cause. So I would say like, just think about the use of absolutes in conversations about any other human being because it's very likely not the case it's not necessarily true you know people you know fiona hill and she said talk to anyone right (laughs) exactly talk to anyone and open up that conversation find ways to open conversation not to close them down with absolutes if you have any feedback on today's show any thoughts about absolutes specific questions or issue framing more broadly, we'd love to hear it. You can email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can always tweet at me at Soronaomi underscore. You can tweet at me at Bicidal and you can tweet at the show at Polylogcast. Thanks everyone. We will talk with you next week. Bye. Bye.